Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. Jennifer Preston, social media editor at the New York Times, delivers the morning keynote at the Digital Impact Conference presented by PRSA on May 7th, 2010 in New York City. Other keynotes were presented by Jeremiah Oyang, who has been featured in a previous episode of this podcast, and Gabriel Stricker, Director, Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, who will be featured in an upcoming interview of this podcast. Two housekeeping items. Um, There are now two new ways to subscribe to this program. If you find you are uh, less active in iTunes or Google Reader uh, with your RSS feeds, you can subscribe to the show in Facebook and on Twitter. Go to www.ontherecordpodcast.com to subscribe via Facebook or, or at On The Record to subscribe via Twitter. And now, the morning keynote from the social media editor of the New York Times, Jennifer Preston, after this. On the Record Online is the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference. To hear in-depth one-on-one interviews with PRSA conference keynoters, presenters, and panelists, search keyword PRSA on our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Join us October 16th through 19th in Washington, D.C. for the PRSA 2010 International Conference. News used to be a first draft of history. Uh, But in a world where everyone participates in news breaking, it may evolve into something more. Today, we crowdsource our news from Ustream and Twitter. But as we also know, first drafts are unfinished. They have typos, mistakes. And as French philosopher Gustave Le Bon wrote in his book, The Crowd, when we're in crowds, we're more willing to surrender our individuality to the popular fervor of the crowd. Mainstream news media outlets use group consensus and journalistic process to divorce news and information from passion, because passion corrupts. Will news media evolve into the final draft, a curated summary of social media, fact-checked and presented in context and perspective? Um, a year ago, Jennifer Preston was appointed uh, the first social media editor of the New York Times, the largest metropolitan daily, and the third largest newspaper nationally in the U.S., or, as the Grey Lady's interactive graphic designer Sean Carter put it in a session at South by Southwest, we have a website that we print out and send to you as hard copy as well. Uh, She spent most of her career in journalism as a reporter covering politics and government before becoming an editor. Uh, She's the former State House Bureau Chief in Trenton, where she covered Governor Christine Todd's Whitman's administration. She covered three former New York City mayors, Ed Koch, David Dinkins, uh, Rudy Giuliani, as a City Hall reporter and a Bureau Chief for the New York Newsday where she also worked as Deputy Metro Editor. Uh, Help me welcome our keynote speaker for the morning, Jennifer Preston. 
I was asked to talk about like how social media came to the, the New York Times, and what I'd like to say is that I honestly had nothing to do with it. When I was appointed social media editor last last May, at the end of last May, the first thing you know I did was report out, gee, what what are we doing, you know, in the social space? And what I found was that the Times had been um, in the social space in a very big way for several years. So, but first, before I tell you about that, I thought let's just talk about how the media landscape has changed in over the years, because that's something that has obviously a direct impact um, on our business and for all of you. So here, look back in 1966. That explains, I guess, why all of those guys on Mad Men were drinking heavily during lunch, right? What did they have to worry about? The newspapers, lots more newspapers, but newspapers, you know, TV, magazines, radio, and outdoor advertising. And then look, in 1986, we have more devices, more ways, we went to cable, disaggregation of content, and oh my goodness, Look, you know, what we're all dealing with now in 2010. I've been at the New York Times now since 1995, and in 1996 was when we first launched nytimes.com. And since then, the strategy has been what Arthur Sulzberger had called a multiple platform strategy. And that was articulated from the very beginning of, um, of, of our, of our arrival in, you know, in, on the internet. And, um, and that has served us well because we are committed to delivering our content on whatever platform and now whatever device, you know, our readers, our users want to, want to get it. And most recently, of course, you know, there's the iPad. But what has been one of the single biggest changes that has taken place in the last couple of years? And that's like the conversation around content. At the New York Times, you know, we'd like to think that that articles, stories uh, from the New York Times have been like a catalyst for conversation since 1851. And, you know, we've been the catalyst for conversations around the water cooler, around the dinner table, in classrooms. And now, now it's it's like quite amazing. I set up a monitor right in the middle of the newsroom so people in the newsroom could see how, how our uh, followers on Twitter were just like talking about uh, our articles and New York Times content um, every four seconds. That's now what we have on Twitter. We have a New York Times link that's shared every four seconds. So as I said, we um, have been a catalyst for conversation around the dinner table, you know, for, for forever. And on the web, we continue to be the site that has the most inbound links, and among other news organizations, I don't think it's it's accurate to call newspapers newspapers anymore. In fact, I'm so wary of this. Newspapers are dying. You know what's what's dying? Hello, you know, in terms of circulation, because in addition to being a journalist, I did do this stint as a circulation marketing director for uh, New York Newsday, which actually, in many ways, is really made my job now as social media editor. Um, very, anyway, makes me understand all sorts of, all sorts of things. But, you know, our audience has grown to 
from like a million to um, 20 million. So, so in the newsroom of the New York Times, we actually do not feel as if we are dying. In fact, since we've integrated our print and digital operations about three and four years ago after we've moved into, well actually before we moved into the new building, but now we're in this fabulous, great space um, near Times Square where it's really been a wonderful opportunity for our journalists, for our developers, for our producers to all work together on all sorts of really creative and, and innovative ways. So again, um, getting back to the New York Times and social media, many of us talk today about, um, gee, a buzz, the web's first interactive knowledge uh, network. It was a great idea. We launched it, but it was too early. And um, and now what we're looking to do with the New York Times, which I'm going to share with you, are some ideas from um, a buzz that we can apply now. Now, Twitter. How many of you are on Twitter? Oh, awesome, awesome. So how did Twitter arrive at, how, how did we get on Twitter at the New York Times? Was it a consultant from McKinsey? A brilliant tech journalist saying, hey boss, you gotta get on the Twitter. Was it our fabulous marketing and corporate communications folks? No, it was at Paris J, who is one of our software developers who works with us in the newsroom. And Jake Harris, he wanted a Twitter feed on his cell phone. So he had a server, which he set up underneath his desk at NY Times and arranged for headlines to come to his cell phone um, using Twitter. This was on March 3rd of 2007. And then I guess, I guess it was a couple of months later, he, um, the cleaning crew one weekend knocked the server over. And so alas, there went the at NY Times headlines. And there were emails flying around the organization what was this? Because suddenly we had customers and they were complaining that at NY Times, you know, was not on Twitter. And there were, it, we found these emails, they're hilarious. Just, you know, we have to sue the person who did this or who is this person and blah, 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 blah. And it was Jake Harris. And since Jake Harris um, launched at Y Times on Twitter back in March of 2007, we now have two point, over 2.4 million followers. And um, shortly after Jake, Jake set up this account, our marketing and corporate communications departments worked very closely together. And this enormously talented young woman, Soraya Jarabi, came to work with us. And working with Jake and other folks in the newsroom, they sliced and diced our content in the way that they thought that that users would want to receive it. So we have, for example, a Twitter account for dining, a Twitter, a Twitter account uh, for books. And they originally all set up for, as RSS feeds. And one of the things that we're now trying to do at the New York Times is, as we say, get them off RSS life support and use them as, um, as wonderful, you know, tools to not only share our content, but, but use um, our Twitter accounts to engage you know, with our users. Just this um, Tuesday morning, I had a fantastic um, time at, was it Tuesday morning or Wednesday morning? The Tony nominations. So I got to work 
with our theater writers and um, Ben Brantley and Charles Isherwood and Patrick Healy and Eric Pikenberg, who's our web producer, and we live tweeted the Tony nominations in addition to live blogging because like what we have found as we move to the real-time web, and we'll talk a little bit about that later, is that live blogging, too slow. Too slow. People, you know, really appreciated those nominations, that information, you know, on their Twitter account in, in real time, which is like how we try to deliver it. So now at the New York Times, we have about more than 200, you know, accounts and staff writers and reporters um, um, on Twitter. Our journalists have found, people said originally when, when I took this job, they said, you know, it's the New York Times and you've got all those journalists who've been there for a very long time. You know, you're going to have a really hard time, Jennifer, getting them to use social media. That has not actually been, been a problem at all because reporters Reporters, our reporters and our editors have found tremendous value um, from Twitter, and I'll be just showing you some examples of that of, of that later. And the other thing that we did at the New York Times, which I think is a little different from other news organizations, and it does present its risks and consequences, and that is we made a decision that. We wanted to encourage innovation. We wanted our journalists to experiment. We wanted them to, to get out there. And so, unlike some organizations that impose these very tight rules, you know, and regulations, and there are some organizations who tell their journalists not to tweet, you, you know, not to use these platforms, we actually took quite the opposite approach. Now, have people made mistakes? Absolutely, absolutely. What is my worst fear? The call from the public editor. You know, which happened just a uh, few weeks ago when um, a freelancer uh, for us um, tweeted something that she should not have tweeted. So if I ever write a book, it will be, you shouldn't be tweeting this. But, um, but we have found overall that our journalists have done a tremendous job, you know, um, using, using Twitter and using other um, social networks and and what what we've done is like in terms of in terms of guidelines do we have guidelines absolutely and they begin with our ethics handbook which is like this thick which everyone who comes to the New York Times it's like the Bible you know gets and so the message that we have delivered to our journalists is this if you wouldn't say it on the Today Show or if you wouldn't say it you know on a radio broadcast you don't say it on Twitter. And the same way with New York Times journalists know you do not put a McCain lawn sign or an Obama bumper sticker, you know, on your on your car. So you don't join the Michelle Obama like fan club on Facebook, you know, unless you're covering the White House and you need to use that information for for your reporting. So so we've been you know, fortunate in that um, the good judgment that our journalists bring to uh, the pages of of our newspaper and to our website and to all the other platforms where we deliver our content have used you know exceptional um, judgment um, on Twitter, which has allowed us to really grow in the social space. Following um, following our uh, 
arrival to the social space on on Twitter. Again, our CorpCom and our marketing team put together a Facebook um, fan page and now has 600,000 fans. And then we'll be talking a little bit more about Facebook at the end of the presentation because Facebook, uh, many of my colleagues came back from um, South by Southwest, you know, which is like the cool, really very wonderful um, place where there's lots of great ideas like shared about what's coming next. And the message from South by Southwest was geolocation, geolocation, Foursquare, Foursquare, Foursquare. And so here I am like, you know, going, uh-uh, it's Facebook. They're like, Facebook, Facebook. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more um, later about, about why that's so. Um, but in addition to Facebook and Twitter, you know, we view, in terms of the social space, YouTube. We have, you know, dozens of, of videos. The New York Times produces, like, tons of, um, of, of video, and we share them with our users, you know, on, um, on, on YouTube. And in fact, something that was, just would have been unheard of just, um, a year ago, um, is we now bring cameras into the page one meeting and where people get to see, you know, how stories are discussed, imagine that. And, um, and we share that, you know, that very day because one of the things that we're absolutely committed to doing and, and, and it, and it's a theme that, that I urge all of you, like, to bring to your own organizations is the value and importance of being open. Um, so here I am saying it's Facebook, not Foursquare. Foursquare is important, but in terms of scale for our organization, you know, Facebook is, is, is a top priority for us in 2010. However, we were the first news organization on Foursquare. We are looking um, forward to working very closely with Foursquare and some of the other new geolocation um, services that, that are coming up. Um, just the Sam Sifton, who is our fabulous dining critic, is now sharing tips on Foursquare. And, and a friend of mine, it was really great fun, um, went into a restaurant just the other night and checked in on um, Foursquare and, you know, up popped a Sam Sifton tip about, like, what you should order. So we're, we're expecting to, to have a lot of um, um, fun with Foursquare. Personally, I'm not on Foursquare. My life is so boring. I'm the mother of uh, 17 and a half year old twins, so if anybody has kids, you know what that's like. I go to work, go home. So, um, so it would be like checking in at work, checking in at Penn Station, how boring is that? You know, and then checking in at the dry cleaners and the supermarket. But when those kids go to college, I'm going to be on Foursquare. You just watch. On January 18th, 2010, Social Marketing to the Business Customer, the first book on business-to-business -business applications of social media communications, will be released by Wiley & Sons. Um, it is my first book, and I co-authored it with Paul Gillen. Uh, he is the author of The New Influencers and um, other books on social media as well. If you are interested in the application of social media uh, specifically for 
business audiences and business customers, uh, this book is for you. Uh, it is the most comprehensive and thorough um, investigation of specifically how, from a strategic and tactical standpoint, uh, to leverage social media for business communications purposes. Um, you can order a copy at ontherecordpodcast.com. Okay, now how do we use social media for reporting? As I said, it really has not been difficult getting our journalists to, to use social media because they see the value in it. In addition to using social media for engagement, you know, for distribution, one of the ways at the New York Times that we have found social media, and Twitter in particular, to provide enormous value to our users is with our, um, with, with Twitter. Even before Twitter launched its Twitter lists last fall, what we did was we put together a list of, of Twitter handles in a module which we place on our blogs and by choosing which handles, which accounts that we think would provide value for, for our users, we are able to provide real-time updates you know, for our users on breaking news stories and really important events like the World Series last last fall. So for the World Series, for example, you know, growing up here as a reporter in um, New York City, I worked in Room 9 for, for six years, and and it was like this, it is, remains this tiny little room, and, you know, the New, I worked at New York Newsday, I was the City Hall Bureau Chief, and, you know, Joyce Pernick and Todd Purdom just sat right next to me, and they were from the New York Times, and Marsha Kramer, um, then worked as City Hall Bureau Chief for the Daily News, and she terrified us because she was always delivering great big, you know, City Hall scoops on um, page one of the Daily News. And then, of course, there was the staff from the Post. And we were all very collaborative and all great friends, but it was a very fiercely competitive um, um, environment. You know, we were always looking forward to like get the scoop to beat our colleagues on a story. So it has been such a shift because during the World Series, like for example, and this was one of the first times we did this, we had um, on a module on our uh, sports, on our bats blog, we had the baseball writers from the New York Daily News, from the Philadelphia Daily News, from the Post, you know, we were sharing, you know, their their uh, headlines, their observations, you know, with New York Times users. So again, openness is a major theme, and collaboration, and working together, and that huge, huge, huge shift. So here, this is um, the story about the terrible tragedy um, at Fort Hood. And I was in the middle of the newsroom um, that day, and I really just saw just from, you know, late that afternoon until midnight, just like how, how news and information and the flow of it has changed. And I thought that I would share that with you because I know that's so important for all of you just to understand a little bit about like the process inside newsrooms now as we've made this um, shift to the real-time web. Well, you know, as you may recall, no one really knew what was going on um, in Fort Hood. 
And, you know, there were these, like, terrifying um, reports that were coming out from this army base. So, so the first thing that we did was we have, um, at the New York Times, what we call the continuous um, news desk, or what I now call the real-time news desk. So we have journalists who do not have beats, whose responsibility is to jump on the big and breaking story that's happening that, that moment. So, so Maria Newman and um, Liz immediately, you know, sprang into action and started started making calls um, on the New York Times. I don't know if you can see that the lead blog by Robert Mackey. This is um, a blog. It's a fantastic blog where what we do is we share the latest news and, and updates on this blog. And what Rob does is he like scours the the web and he like shares like during um, the Haiti earthquake. Um, because of Twitter, you know, we were monitoring um, Twitter and we saw a tweet from a Columbia journalism student who was down there doing a magazine piece. And what he did was he shot video on his iPhone of the earthquake just like taking place. And so, you know, Rob was able to like pull that and share that with our um, users on, um, you know, right there on the web so that our, our readers, our users did not have to wait for the next day's paper or wait till the edited story appeared on the website. But one of the biggest changes that took place this day was that we, you know, had used uh, Twitter lists for the U.S. Open, for, um, as I said, the World Series, but this was the first, first time that we had used it for a big breaking news story. And so what we did was, what, what I did was, in my role as a social media editor, was to identify um, using this new uh, search functionality that Twitter had just uh, made available at that time that allowed us to find news organizations that were on the ground so that we could share, you know, on the ground um, reports with our readers and users as we were learning them. So that meant that uh, reports from the Colleen Daily Herald were running, you know, on the homepage of the um, of the New York Times. We also included reports from local television stations. I found actually that local television stations haven't haven't done this now a few times um, are actually really on top of breaking news and really use um, social sites and Twitter in particular extremely well. And however, however, you know, it's the New York Times, right? So, and, and Eric, you had talked about like the first draft of, of history and is now a tweet stream, the first draft of history. So we share, you know, responsibility. There's a big responsibility to make sure that we are curating, that we are putting, you know, the, um, information in that, in that module, Twitter handles, um, um, accounts, people who we think bring, will bring value. So just like what I tell our editors and journalists as they put up these modules, because we've now done it with almost every breaking news story, is, um, so how do you know, you know, to include a Twitter handle? The first thing I look at is someone's stream. You can go right to their account and you can look at their stream. And if anybody uses any one of those words that I would not want my 17 and a half year old twins to use, they don't get, you know, on our Twitter list. And the other thing that, you know, it's very, it's very 
easy, actually, to, you know, see how someone's judgment, you know, what are they sharing? And um, so, so at this first round, we were very careful, though, not to include individuals because we just, you know, we stuck to, like, the Red Cross, um, news organizations, uh, a couple of other, like, emergency um, response um, organizations because, again, we wanted to share value and and it was in real time. So we wanted to make sure it was right. Um, so here, as you can see from, from the homepage, from this shot here, we had, we had, this was, I guess this, that's a screenshot was about seven o'clock at night. So we have Maria's story from our uh, continuous news desk. We have our Twitter list. We have the lead blog, which is updated, you know, every uh, 20 minutes or so with news, with new reports. And then we have a call right there on our homepage, say, send photos to, uh, at, to pics at nyt.com. Um, one of the other big shifts that has taken place at the New York Times is how we have involved our readers and users in the, in the creative process and in gathering um, news. And we got some um, pictures through there. And then over there, you could hardly see it, a Times Topics page. Because yes, there is Wikipedia, and Facebook just seeded tens of thousands of community pages on its platform with Wikipedia. But what we got, we got Times Topics pages. And if you want your kids to do a report, would you send them to Wikipedia? Maybe just like as a starting point, but if you want them to cite a source, you can come to the New York Times Topics pages. So then here, this was about 10 o'clock at night, when we still have the Twitter list up, we still have send photos, we still have Maria's story, but then dropped Jim Dow's story, which was a profile of the shooter. And this was the story that also ran on page one of the New York Times, and at midnight, Bob McFadden, many of you who are longtime New York Times readers know that Robert McFadden has been at the New York Times for a very long time. Whenever there is like a big, huge, gigantic story, Robert McFadden writes it. And he wrote this one, and his story went up at midnight, and then of course it arrived at everyone's uh, doorstep that morning. Because as I say, you know, as, as, we, as we say, we have an app for this and an app for that, and one of our apps arrives at your home at 6 a.m. in a blue bag. Okay, so how do we use social media to engage our audience? We, you know, as I said, we ask for pictures. This is an example of how we used Obama's, um, how we used Twitter and Facebook uh, for the State of the Union. We asked people to tell us, you know, what they thought in real time as the State of the Union was taking place. And what we did was like share our readers' comments right on our homepage. Again, um, involving our users and readers in the creative process. Check out our website next Tuesday. Then you'll see the results of more than 14,000 photos that were sent to us in the last few days from our Moment in Time project. This project was just amazing. We got, um, I think it was like 13,000 people to sign up for it on, on Facebook. And on Twitter, we put out a call, 
And what the Moment of Time project was was this. It was very simple. It was a glo it was an opportunity to create a global photo community. At 11 a.m. on Sunday in New York and around the world at that time, we asked people to just take a photo of this moment in time. And so we're going to be sharing that on our Lens blog early next week. We ran into a couple of technical difficulties. We just were just overwhelmed with the uh, response that we got. But I think that everyone will find that it will be worth the um, wait. In terms of journalists at the New York Times who we think have used um, social media in the most effective way, I always point to Nick Kristoff, who is one of our columnists. He is just just done an amazing job, just engaging um, his audience, you know, our audience, um, with Facebook and Twitter and with um, his blog. Um, so here, you're all familiar, I'm sure, with the plane landing in the Hudson at the New York Times in the newsroom. How did we learn about it? Twitter. Who had the first picture of it? A user. There it is, on Twitter. How else um, are we using it? You know, in Iran, you've all heard about Twitter in 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 Iran, and uh, Robert Mackey, who did the lead blog, you know, was scouring Twitter for information from Iran. And then Brian Stelter, you have to follow Brian Stelter at Brian Stelter if you use Twitter. He's just he covers media, so he writes lots of stories and blog posts that's relevant. Um, undoubtedly to, to your work. And he's just very charming on Twitter. And he uses, I think, Twitter most effectively um, in the newsroom. And then here, another tool, another resource for you, I think, is Muckrack. Muckrack um, is a, a wonderful, wonderful way for you just to learn not just, you know, what New York Times journalists are on Twitter, but as you can see, you know, Muckrack has ABC News, the Chicago Tribune, blogs. It can be a great directory for you as public relations professionals, just finding out who's on Twitter in different news organizations. So what's next? What's next? Um, we talked about geolocation, and that is a huge, huge trend, especially um, among you know folks in their 20s and, and 30s. Um, you know, a couple of other trends that I think are really important to be mindful of as you think about developing your own, you know, strategies. One is that, you know, the expectation now that consumers have that information will be pushed to them. And also, also, you know, the term in the stream. Information is just like moving from one device, one platform to another. And, you know, we all, like, need to move with it. The trusted referral amid the noise. There's so many, as we saw from that first slide, there's so many devices, there's so much information coming to all of us, you know, at the same time, that what we're seeing is that information that comes to you from a trusted source or from a friend, someone who shares it with you, is of course the information that you're gonna pay attention to. And the other thing is real identity and public sharing. Real identity is really the, the um, foundation for engagement, which is what we're really focusing on now at the New York Times, on how we can engage our users around, around our storytelling. And you can do that now 
we think with real identity. And as Sheryl Sandberg, the Chief Operating Officer of Facebook said, the sh that she pointed to, and she came to talk to us like a few weeks ago, about the shift from the what to the who. And again, that goes back to the trusted referral. And as I said at the New York Times, our focus is on engagement. And our priority in 2010 is Facebook. So while geolocation is the coolest, newest thing, it is impossible to ignore the scale here. Facebook now has 400 million users, 200 million people sign in every day. So we are actually, um, you know, you may have seen the plugins at CNN and the Washington Post and the controversy about some of the other um, implementations of the new Facebook open graph. Um, we are also working on a site integration and you'll be hearing more about that in a few weeks. We're also looking at rolling out um, our content in with a multiple channel um, vertical strategy. Because what we want to do is present our content on Facebook in the way that users can and want to organize around it rather than, you know, replicate the newspaper or our website on the Facebook platform. So what I really want to do, however, this morning is to take your questions and to have a conversation. So please, shoot. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.